0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Book Podcast. I am Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Charles Reagan Wilson, author of the book, The Southern Way of Life, Meanings of Culture and Civilization in the American South. How are you doing today,
1: Professor? I'm doing great.
0: I wonder if you could tell us about yourself and how you became interested in this project.
1: Well, I am a retired professor of Southern History and Southern Studies at the University of Mississippi. Uh, I'm a Southerner. You know, people ask me that sometimes writing a book like this. I am indeed a Southerner. My family was from Middle Tennessee. My dad grew up on a farm and my mom in a small town called Greenbrier north of Nashville. We moved to West Texas when I was uh, a kid uh, and So I had that uh, we'd go back every summer, though, and visit my grandparents in Tennessee. And I had that small town Southern experience every summer. And then the rest of the year, I was living in a very suburban kind of American graffiti sort of neighborhood in in, uh, El Paso, Texas. So I came. I went to graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin, came to uh, the University of Mississippi in 1981. And I came to work on the Encyclopedia of Southern Culture, <clears throat> that um, I was the co-editor with, uh, co-editor of with Bill Ferris, um, and that came out in nineteen eighty nine, and that was a reference book about the South. Um, and as a follow up to that, I conceived the idea to do a, a, a monograph, to do a history book called The Southern Way of Life. So I had a sabbatical, and I, I wrote three chapters, and then the sabbatical ended, and I went back to teaching, and I kind of dropped the project for years. So it began in 1989. This is a long time coming, and uh, but uh, when I retired, I was looking for uh, another research project, and I got back into my notes, and, and uh, I had to reconceptualize, and, and um, but having uh, my, my retirement years, I've been retired eight years now, and that was my retirement project to write the book, and it came out in uh, earlier this year.
0: Great. In the introduction you indicated that the Southern way of life, the phase has changed over time. Tell us about how this has changed.
1: Well, um I cover a very wide period of time from all the way from the colonial period uh, up until the 21st century. And I, the book is really about Southern regional consciousness, about Southern identity. Uh, it's about how Southerners, how Southerners came to think of themselves as Southerners in a lot of ways and how that changed over the years. I saw the Southern regional identity uh, going through three major changes uh, and they're identified with three terms. Uh, the first term is Southern Civilization, that uh, people who would become Southerners in the colonial period and and non-Southerners, they began to use that term Southern Civilization to talk about a, a distinctive regional society in the American South. And it grew out of, of course, European ideas about civilization, Western civilization. White Southerners who came South thought they were extending Western civilization, but they made a distinctive regional society Based around slavery, and that slave society uh, fought a civil war, trying to gain its independence, but it lost to uh, a broader American civilization. Um, After the Civil War, Southern white Southerners uh, reconceptualized; they gave up slavery, but they still believed they could establish a distinctive Southern civilization, and that. That kind of shaped their attitudes up until World War I. Now, World War I was a very disillusioned experience in, in the Western Europe and, West, and in America um, because of its great tragedies and the bloodshed and, and all of this. And it led to the questioning about Southern civilization. But Southern, Southerners adopted uh, a new term to describe their society, and that was the Southern way of life. Now, that's the title of my book because it became the most popular of these ideas of these terms about Southern regional identity. So for some people, the Southern way of life, it could mean a lot of things. Uh, my, my book is about the many Souths really. Uh, and it could mean, uh, white supremacy. That was its dominant meaning. Um, but it could also, uh, mean, um, uh, an agrarian society. It could mean a uh, well-mannered society. Southerners always pride themselves on good manners. It could mean a religious society because the South has been the region in the United States with the most overt uh, religious identity uh, for a long time. Uh, so it could mean, mean a lot of different things, but that term Southern way of life was was popular from 1930 or so up until the mid-1960s. Now, in the mid-1960s, the South changed really fundamentally. Uh, first of all, uh, there was the end of the uh, peculiar racial legal system of the Jim Crow segregation laws that provided for for legalized racial segregation. Um And it also, um, there was economic change. The South had traditionally been agrarian, had been farm, uh, farm economy, farm society. Well, industrialization and urbanization entered the South after World War II in a huge way. So out of all of those changes came a new concept about Southern distinctiveness. And that term was Southern living. And by that was meant... um, a more middle-class society, a more prosperous society, uh, suburban society. Most people began moving to the suburbs rather than living in small towns in the countryside. So those three terms, Southern Civilization, Southern Way of Life, and Southern Living, give a structure to my book that explores really the Southern identity.
0: Let's examine the Jim Crow days, blacks and whites, and their views of the Southern Way of Life.
1: Well, um... The Southern, the, 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 I call it the racialized Southern way of life with segregation, and it came out of the deep seated racial sense, white supremacy that, that Southern, many Southern whites had. Um, and it, it came, it was the inheritance really of slavery, where you had this rigidly defined society of white people with all the power and African Americans with no power. Uh, well, the Civil War ended that, uh, ended slavery and that rigidity. But the Jim Crow segregation laws that were passed in the 1890s, mostly, provided for uh, a very strict segregation um, of of Southern life in in terms of public facilities um, um, and uh, attitudes. Um, So... um, and it reflected uh, the belief that whites had in hierarchies, you know, men over women and black white people over black people, and that was enforced by law. So there was a whole landscape of, of segregation of uh, you know colored signs, white signs, indicating uh, which public spaces the two races could be in, and there was there was no mixing. Um, so it was that was defined very. Uh, rigorously by whites and by the law. And whites came to see their segregated society as, as being a very orderly society. And they, they stressed what they saw as positive features of manners and hospitality. For African-Americans, they could never really embrace the term Southern way of life if it meant white supremacy, obviously. Um, but they, uh, so they they their role in, in Southern history and the Southern identity in a lot of ways was really to critique these race, racist views to the degree they could because they had so little power. Um, but African-Americans also defined uh, their own uh, version of the Southern way of life uh, around a um, their own institutions. The the black church is the classic example. And this tells you something about segregation's complexity. Um, The South, as I mentioned, was the most overtly religious region in the United States with high rates of church membership and church attendance. And that was true for African-Americans as well as white Christians. The irony was African-Americans Worshipped in different churches than whites did. African Americans worshiped in the National Baptist Convention, for example. White Southerners were worshiped in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, but underneath that separation, there was a lot of similarity of, of religion in terms of theology, the, the stress on evangelicalism, um, the, hy- the hymns, the hymnals were very similar. Um, so uh, African Americans defined their own version of the Southern way of life.
0: At one time, you indicate that the phrase "a Southern way of life" was a code word. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, it was a, a code word um, for white supremacy um, and racial dominance. Now, for much of Southern history, white Southerners didn't hesitate to 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 talk about that, you know, justify their belief in white supremacy. But as times changed, it became, uh, you know embarrassing and the larger society that had changed, certainly in terms of uh, talking to Northerners and non-Southerners. So it became a code word for for race, for white supremacy. You you wouldn't use racist language, but you would just use that very positive sounding Southern way of life. But people knew what you were talking about. So it became a kind of code word.
0: You included a painting entitled The Price of Blood. Can you tell us about that picture and how it portrays a southern way of life?
1: The picture is uh, uh, the painting is an amazing one by an antebellum painter from uh, uh, Carolina uh, who named Thomas Satterfield White. and it portrays there's the three figures in the in the painting, and they're sitting around a table. and on the left side is a young, a uh, man who obviously is mixed race by the color of his skin. On the other side of the table is uh, an older man with a beard as as white uh, men would have w- worn in the pre-Civil War period, uh, looking very well-dressed and powerful. And then in the middle is a, a man who is standing, and he is a slave trader. And the scene portrays this uh, white slave owner negotiating with a slave trader to sell his own son into slavery on another plantation. So it's a, it's a dramatic uh, um, portrayal of the fundamental issues of race in the South. Um, despite the, the later uh, effort to segregate through, through Jim Crow segregation, the realities were that black and white people have been thrown together in the South as long as, as they have been on Southern soil. And so there has been racial mixing. And so you have light-skinned uh, mixed-race uh, people, such as in this picture. Um, but this theme of, of the, the, the mixing uh, of, of races and the effort to stop that, uh, and yet the commercialization of it in this painting, is a very powerful one. It evokes uh, much of Southern literature. William Faulkner, for example, in his uh, novel... Uh, Absalom. Absalom has a similar story about the the landowning planter, Thomas Sutpen, who fathers a a mixed race child. So um, it's a very powerful theme in Southern uh, history. And and to me, I chose that picture because of its power in portraying all of this and uh, how it connects with broad themes about the Southern way of life.
0: You talk about the lost cause and how culture has been passed on from generation to generation. How is the lost cause viewed in the New South?
1: Well, the lost cause was a a social movement uh, that began after the Civil War. And the term lost cause refers to the defeat in the Confederacy. So the lost cause is really the memory of the Confederacy after the the Civil War ended. you know the the war had been uh, fought intensely by by southern soldiers and political leaders and ministers had told southern whites they were fighting for the for for um, to preserve slavery as the basis of this orderly society they believed in but they lost the war and so they had to come to terms with that and So the idea that the war had been lost and that was inevitably lost because of northern, greater northern resources, manpower, industrial power, whatever. But also the term came to take on the meaning that the cause was not really lost, that God had punished, had had chastened, chastened uh, white southerners. But they had they had to give up slavery, but they would devise other means to preserve this racially based society. So the Lost Cause developed into such a powerful movement that was passed on from generation to generation in the South because it had such a complex cultural configuration. There were institutions like the Sons of the Confederacy and the Children of the Confederacy, United Confederate Veterans, uh, and above all, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, now these were lobbying groups and pressure groups, as well as being uh, heritage groups. Uh, but they would pressure for uh, laws to uh, to remember the Confederacy, uh, for books on southern uh, on the Confederate history. Uh, they they placed pictures of Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee in virtually every schoolhouse in the South. Um, and they were responsible really for the dedication of hundreds of Confederate monuments throughout the south that uh, th- these you know the, this lost cause complex included the monuments it included uh, the Confederate battle flag it became a part of uh, uh, waving over so many public buildings and state part of state flags it included the singing of Dixie uh, at political rallies it Included uh, the rebel yell that went back to the Civil War times that was sung often at sporting events like football games in the South. So, uh, because of all of this effort, this this lost cause was passed on from one generation to the other uh, for 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 years until our own times. In fact, when the monuments, for example, have begun to come down, but uh, the New South, of course, began in the eighteen eighties. It was another social and economic movement that called for a South that would be more welcoming to business and industry rather than just agriculture. The New South also uh, promoted ideals of prosperity and uh, better race relations and more education. Um, And it it seemed to be a very forward-looking movement. And yet it also, the New South advocates also embraced the lost cause they never really, uh, never really uh, questioned it and its version of Southern history, and and um, so it, it preserved this sort of forward-looking economic uh, uh, motive with a kind of nostalgia for the pre-Civil War slave society.
0: Now, in your book, you talk about the meals being similar to plantations. I thought that was interesting. Can you tell the audience about that?
1: Well, the plantations uh, had been the defining feature of the Old South in many ways. The plantations were the source of the greatest wealth that was being generated in the region through the, the fantastic uh, popularity of cotton at that time in, in, in Europe and around the world. Uh, the plantation was also the center of slavery. The largest landowners in the South who owned the plantations also were the largest slave owners. Um, the plantation represented a world of social hierarchy, such as I mentioned before: men over women, uh, white people over black people. Um, blacks were black labor was exploited, of course, and under slavery, and life was hard. Um, there, but there was a very paternalistic sort of attitude. White planters often treated their slaves like they were children, and and they aspired to to be paternalistic toward them. Um, although they denied them any any free will. After the Civil War, the textile mill became the symbol of the New South. Here was an economic force, the textile mill, that uh, reflected the a movement, an attempt to move the South's economy toward industrialization and, and toward factories. The original textile mills in the United States had been formed in the, uh, after the revolution in New England. Well, after the Civil War, the New England mill owners came south because of cheap labor. <clears throat> uh, after the Civil War, white Southerners especially were looking for uh, jobs and moving from sharecropping, uh, sharecrop farms that, where they were very poor into what seemed like more opportunities in the, in the textile mills. Uh, there was a kind of crusade in the South in the 1880s and 1890s to bring mills south because of the hope of greater prosperity. Well, the mill owners established mill villages. And these mill villages were very much like the plantations of, of the antebellum South. Uh, as with the plantation, the textile mills supported a particular way of life. Work was hard. Pay was low. Work weeks were very long child labor was used. There was much exploitation. Uh, there was that same sense of social hierarchy with the, with the textile mill owners at the very, very top. Um, and a kind of paternalism. Again, the, the mill villages were amazing institutions because they, the mill owners provided everything. They provided the the schools, they, they paid the ministers' salaries or, uh, but that meant they had total control, as in a pla- slave plantation. Uh, only certain kinds of religion churches were allowed there. Only certain things were taught in the schools. Uh, and again, there was a kind of paternalism, as as the mill owners portrayed the the mill workers as like children who needed guidance and oversight. Um, so uh, I, I think there's a, a lot of similarity between the plantations and the mill the mill villages.
0: You talk about Thomas Dixon and his movies. How did these movies depict the Southern life?
1: Thomas Dixon was a fascinating figure at the turn of the 20th century. He was a kind of entrepreneur. He had done a variety of of, uh, jobs, careers. He had been a politician. He had been a Baptist preacher for a while. He was a real estate estate speculator. But where he gained his greatest fame was as a writer of popular novels. And he published three novels in the first decade of the 20th 20th century. Um, One was called The Klansman, another was Leopard Spots. And they portray a South that is uh, in the middle of a the bitter and intense struggle, as he saw it, between black and white people for control of, of the region. And he was unrelenting in his negative portrayals of African Americans, portraying them in very very demeaning uh, uh, portraits and very violent, very bestial and brutal. Um, so these novels became popular in the, not just in the South, but in the United States, because this this was the period of, of uh, uh, inexpensive books that were beginning to appear, and novels now sold in much greater quantities than they had earlier, and his novels were part of that movement. So they were made into movies, and most notably a movie called Birth of a Nation in the second decade of the 20th century, and it was a story of civil war and uh and Reconstruction, the period after the Civil War, so uh, in in the movies' portrayals, it, it portrayed this, you know, the stories from the novels, which were, again were very racist and portrayed a very idealized version of Southern white society, very chivalrous, uh, and um, it it uh, the the plot goes around a the daughter of a Northern Civil War veteran who marries the son of a Confederate. Family, And so it's a kind of Romeo and Juliet story. And, but it portrays the whites, all Northern and Southern, very, very positively. Uh, but it portrays African-Americans in really b- very demeaning and brutalized, uh, ways. And what made that movie so powerful is that the filmmaker, D.W. Griffith, who was an extraordinary filmmaker and innovator, and he came up with many of the, for the first time, uh, camera techniques or uh, filmmaking techniques the montage the flashback the close-up uh he was the the innovator who came up with these and so it made the movies kind of spectacular for audiences it became the most popular american movie until gone with the wind in the 1930s that movie also led to the formation of the second ku klux klan because organizers had seen the movie and and uh took the, the racial views from the movie into the formation of the second clan.
0: You talk about journalists, academics, and creative writers. How did they depict the
1: South after the New Deal? Well, there uh, uh, traditionally, Southern writing had been very much orthodox, very unquestioning, very uncritical about Southern society, uh, and... Um, it didn't have much impact on national literature, to be honest. Uh, The famous critic H. L. Mencken uh, in uh, the 1920s wrote a famous article called the Sahara of the Beaux-Arts, where he claimed that the South was totally uncreative and and was smothered by orthodoxy of politics and religion and, and you know, uh, any kind of criticism being suppressed. Um, Well, uh, after that, a, a decade or so later, and, and during and after the New Deal, was a period of what's called the Southern Literary Renaissance. It's a period when the great writers of the South appeared. William Faulkner, who won a Nobel Prize. Richard Wright, his fellow Mississippian. Uh, Eudora Welty, another Mississippian. But Robert Penn Warren, Thomas Wolfe, uh, so many of them. Um, there was also a Southern musical renaissance in these years. If you look at this interwar period... Um, you had the, the emergence of blues and jazz and country music, uh, gospel music. All of, all of this suggested a, a cultural uh, renaissance in, in general. But Mencken had been right that since the Civil War, the South had been dominated by an orthodoxy that discouraged criticism of Southern ways. Now, though, and after during and after the New Deal, uh, a new sense of... Uh, of social criticism appeared, a willingness to be realistic in looking at the, uh, at the South and to, to expose uh, problems. That became a major theme of writing about the South, whether it was by creative fiction writers or by academics or, or journalists was a a realism um, that uh, uh, explored and portrayed uh, uh, a pervasive poverty, uh, problems with schools, health problems, healthcare problems, all of these that had been glossed over in, in the past, books began to appear. Like "Let Us Now Praise Famous Men," by James A. G., the author and photographer Walker Evans, that documented documented an intensely poor uh, group of families in in central Alabama, and uh, and explored this as did many other writers exploring poverty. Um, this related this this realism related to the emergence of. A particular form of academic study and that is sociology and social science um that uh produced some very prominent american sociologists from the south like howard odom and and uh, rupert johnson and an uh, african-american charles johnson who became the president of fisk university after after world war ii um and they again they explored social problems uh, uh with a kind of realism that had not been seen in the south uh before um after the New Deal, Southern uh, observers, writers, and academics, and and uh, others showed the South it was re- really a part of a national context. After the New New Deal, World War II, on the heels of the New Deal, made the South part of the war effort, and the, after that, there was the Cold War. Uh, there were technological improvements uh, like television that worked to bring the South more. Uh, Intensely into the national context, transportation like the interstate highways in the 1950s that again uh, broke down some of the isolation of the South uh, and made it a part of the of the nation. And so, writers explored this changing context uh, as well.
0: You talk about the Southern way of life and the Bible Belt. How are they connected?
1: Well, the, the they they over they overlap. I guess you would say. The, um, the Bible Belt is a term that was coined by the man I just mentioned, H.L. Mencken, uh, in the 1920s, and he didn't mean it as a compliment. <laughs> he, he, he claimed that the, the South was smothered by this orthodoxy uh, because of the, the religiosity uh, that was so dominant uh, as he saw it. So uh, the Bible Belt, the term dates from the 1920s, but it, it describes... The uh, historical uh, fact, I guess, that that uh, the South has been the place that is, of the region, the American region, that has had the highest rates of church membership and church attendance, church giving. Um, it has also been a particular variety of religion that has dominated, and that is evangelical Protestantism. Now, evangelical Protestantism dates to around the turn of the 19th century on the southern frontier and uh, it uh, involved especially the Baptist and the Methodist. And the Baptist and the Methodist grew in enormous numbers, uh, especially after the civil war. And there are many different denominations that they are embodied in, you know, the the Baptist, not only the Southern Baptist convention, but the primitive Baptist, the missionary Baptist, so many others. We say in the South, there are more Baptists than people in the South. Uh, And this, this, uh, this pervasiveness of religiosity uh, and it influenced the the public square you know it was there's there was less separation of church and state in the south than in other parts of the of the united states up until the 1960s um, so the the bible belt uh, evokes the very important role of religion in the southern way of life
0: The scoops trial of 1925, what did that tell us about the Southern culture and the government?
1: I think that the the uh, the Scopes trial r- reflected this religious uh, sentiment and the uh, desire to use government to try to uh, buttress religion. Uh, the Scopes trial, of course, was a conflict between science and religion about the teaching of evolution. Evolution had become a popular uh, doctrine in science in the late 19th century. Uh, and it had uh, entered into Southern public universities, like the intellectual context of the time. But to the average Southern uh, member of a church, it reflected a, uh, a view of, of the origins of of humanity that were different than the cre the creator the Christian uh, story, and so they opposed it uh, in various ways. They tried to uh, purge the seminaries of the South from uh, scholars who would teach about evolution. But most notably was the uh, the Scopes trial where the state of Tennessee had passed a law against the teaching of evolution. And the trial became very high profile as, uh, uh, Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan, two of the most famous of Southerners of that period, one, a lawyer, one, a politician, they agreed to, to be the lawyers for the prosecution and the defense. So it was a, it was a a kind of a spectacle and uh, journalists covered it, wrote about it a lot. Uh, But I think deep down it was significant because it reflected this desire among the South's religious people to use government to try to uh, to, uh, downplay, oppose, eliminate discussion of alternate views of of science.
0: Agrarian way versus the Southern way. Is there a difference?
1: Well, agrarian has i think two meanings in this context one is the fact that um the the south was rural and farm oriented uh for much for really most of its history up until the late 20th century more people lived in rural areas they lived in agrarian worlds of farming whether it was plantation farming or or small scale independent farming or sharecropping tenant farming Uh, so most people simply lived in in um in 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 uh, worlds where they were familiar with rural ways and with with agrarian ways, um, partly this was a, created a large body of folklore. You know, the rural ways had uh, generated so many folk tales and folk songs and folk sayings, so, folk superstitions, uh, and uh, it involved language as well. That was kind of a understood. Uh, the great African-American writer, Zora Neale Hurston, one time wrote about uh, she was part of a traveling company uh, with everybody else being from the North except her. And she says that they treated her very different. She was kind of exotic because of that. Uh, in the first place, she wrote, I was a Southerner and had the map of Dixie on my tongue and. Um, she observed that these non Southern people did not know of the way an average Southern child, white or black, is raised on simile and invective. They know how to call names. It is an everyday affair to hear somebody called a mullet headed, mule eared, wall eyed, hog nosed, gator faced, shad mouthed, screw necked, goat bellied, puzzle gutted, camelback, butt sprung, battle hammed, knock kneed, razor legged, box ankled, shovel footed, unmated, so and so. Um, uh, They take their comparisons right out of the barnyard and the woods. So again, this is an example of of the uh, Southern way of life as an agrarian, uh, an agrarian way full of, of, of colorful folklore. But the term agrarian is associated with a particular use of the Southern way of life. The first, time the term Southern Way of Life was used, it was in a book called I'll Take My Stand in 1930 by a group of 12 writers, mostly from Vanderbilt University in Nashville. And they uh, they defended uh, the traditional South of agrarianism against what they believed was the rapidly encroaching influence of industrialization and urbanization. So they really put that term agrarian into popular usage as for them, meaning the same thing as the Southern way of life.
0: Tin Pan Alley. Tell us about that.
1: Tin Pan Alley was a a group of uh, songwriters, musicians uh, in New York City, and they were uh, tied in with, you know, Broadway and popular music uh, traveling shows, whatever. But they, they created many of, uh, what's called the songs of the great American songbook. And they are, uh, the songs though, that in the late, you know, they were the late 19th century and early 20th century. They were terms that were, uh, uh, created songs about the South that were very idealized and, uh, romanticized. Uh, for example, they, uh, uh, lots of lazy rivers and scenes of cotton fields and, and all of this. Uh, they often had demeaning racial uh, por- portraits of African Americans, but very sort of stylized uh, songs about the about the plantation. Um, um, so, uh, and I think this reflected a long-standing tendency for the national culture in places like New York City and on Tin Pan Alley. To look to the South as being a counterweight to modernization, you know, modernization uh, includes industrialization, urbanization, consumerism, all of these things. And for so long, the South was seen and sometimes still is seen as a kind of counterweight, as a kind of pre-modern place. Or again, where people aren't working at the fast pace of big cities, but are working down on the farm, or they've got time, you know, in that great Hoagy Carmichael song, Summertime, uh, filled with images of a hot summertime of leisurely activities. Um, And it's a kind of uh, national pastoral view of the South uh, that doesn't at all come to terms with the great complexity and the challenges of a biracial society or anything like that. But it was a very influential
0: The least unionized part of the nation. Tell us about
1: that. Uh, so the the South was uh, predominantly agricultural, as I've said for so long, and uh, the, the unionization movement in the United States really started in industries in the in the Northeast and the Midwest in the late 19th century, and there were few of those to to organize in the South. Um, but uh, there were efforts, you know, the textile mills uh, included uh, efforts at unionization. And the union, the mill owners were, textile mill owners were violently opposed to unions because they thought they would raise the price uh, of labor. Uh, and the, the model, the business model, in a sense, that, that Southern Textile mill owners used was cheap labor because they felt felt that was an advantage they would have against industries in other parts of the United States that were unionized and were paying higher wages. So these these industrialists, these textile mill owners, fought mills ruthlessly, and they often had so much power in local communities um, that they controlled the criminal justice system and the police forces and sheriffs and and. uh, uh, they they were a very powerful force in preventing unionization. There was the fear in, among some white Southerners that unions would be a way for African Americans to gain power. You know, they created this segregated world of disfranchisement where they had basically taken away African Americans' right to vote by various measures and um, and so, if they got economic power by higher wages by joining unions, that would empower them to perhaps challenge other aspects of, of the segregated society. So I think it was a combination of this, these racial fears about black people in union unions, and also the fear of having to pay higher wages uh, to 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 uh, to uh, textile workers.
0: You talk about Howard Arbon in your book. Was his solution to Black American social condition?
1: Well, he was a scholar, and he, first of all, wanted to document uh, the the plight of African Americans in hope of bringing changes in attitudes and and public policies. Now, uh, he had begun as a very traditional Southerner. I grew up on a farm, and he had traditional Southern white racial views, which were very uh, white supremacist. Um, But he grew, you know, he got, he became well-educated, got his PhD in in sociology, and he became the director of the uh, Institute for Social Science Research at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and editor of a very influential journal called Journal of Social Forces. So his, uh, his his solution to the racial problems, I think, was to favor uh, public policies that would improve African-American schools, uh, help up economic uh, more economic opportunities. He really did believe in equal opportunity for African-Americans. The weakness of his vision, though, its limitations, was that he never could get past the idea of a segregated society. He didn't necessarily believe in the equality of black and white Southerners. He did believe in that opportunities should be more available to African-Americans through public policies. But again, he never really uh, forthrightly uh, repudiated the segregated society of Jim Crow.
0: You talk about organizations before the 50s that focus on racial issues, but most opposed integration. Tell us about that.
1: Well, these were uh, organizations that were uh, interracial organizations. They were dominated by, they they were interracial, but they were dominated by white uh, Southerners. Excuse me. And they were mostly white Southerners from very prominent families, old families. Um, But they were the younger members of those families, and they had become professionals become educators become journalists and others and they they formed these reform societies one of them was the commission on interracial cooperation in the 1920s it was succeeded by the southern conference for human w- welfare and again their their strategy was to make use of the what were regarded as the best people the most respected the people with a lot of status because of their family uh, position or their the money that their family their families controlled, and so they were—they were progressives. Uh, they were called liberals. We would call them now uh, moderates, um, because they weren't really pushing the the boundaries of this segregated society. They weren't ever really calling for true integration. For example, such as it happened in the 1950s with new reform groups, um, but they—they uh, they were. Uh, highly respected people, generally in the South, even though they were moderate, even though they were uh, working toward changes in race relations to improve race relations, even though within a segregated society, um, they they were moderate, and because they they feared outside intervention, their you know their uh, witness or whatever is that white Southerners were the ones that needed to change this segregated society. And they feared the federal government coming in and doing it because they thought back to Reconstruction. When the federal government sent federal troops in after the end of the Civil War, two or three years after the war was over, they sent federal troops back in to try to uh, to build a political system in the South that would work for racial change. And that had, they regarded Reconstruction in those days as a failure, and they were afraid this outside intervention by the federal government would bring bloodshed as white Southerners refused to to uh, accept the end of segregation. Um, so um, they they I think were significant in that they uh, were a moderating force uh, for, for a lot of white Southerners who heard them, even though even though they didn't always moderate their racial views. Often they did. Uh, and it made for a m- more moderate racial atmosphere, and also, th- being an interracial being interracial groups, they uh, talked to white Southerners about the possibility of a, of an in- of someday an integrated society. And when the racial changes of the mid 1960s happened, with the end of Jim Crow segregation and disenchant disenfranchisement, I think that those voices of those moderates were an important moderating force on how white Southerners responded to the end of of segregation.
0: Moonshine and the Southern way of life. A lot of journalists talked about this. What did they say?
1: Well, uh, moonshine, whiskey, liquor, they were uh, uh, regarded as a peculiar moral sin um, in the South, uh, in in uh, Sunday school, I learned what were called the finger sins. They were called finger sins because you counted them off on your fingers. You know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't drink alcoholic beverages, don't covet your neighbor's goods, don't drink alcoholic beverages. Uh, uh, drinking alcohol was regarded as uh, a sign of personal sin uh, and uh, reprobation, uh, destroying families, uh, all of this. And so it became a great moral cause. Southern churches, the Baptist and Methodist, especially, who are the, by far the most numerous churches, they generally were suspicious about supporting reform movements. They, their general attitude was to leave to Caesar what is Caesar's, and we will just preach the gospel. Uh, so they didn't often get into supporting reform, but they did support uh, prohibition, and uh, and uh, they worked uh, tirelessly for it, the advocates of it, so that by the time the National Prohibition Amendment was approved in 1919, every southern state already had state laws prohibiting the sale of alcoholic beverages, and it was just widespread. Now, the irony, of course, is that alcohol remained available in the south because of moonshine which was associated with uh, small farms and isolated hill country and mountain areas that were hard to police um, moonshine entered into into humor you know stories of moonshiners uh, uh, songs about moonshiners and country music uh, and the blues all of this um so it, 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 sometimes the crusading journalists would would uh, talk about the violence associated with moonshining, you know as, as they would uh, uh, in a poor society, moonshine could be a source of revenue and, and money and could be fought over uh, the, the stills. So it was a variety of, of uh, uh, meanings I think, to moonshine and prohibition, but it certainly became the great moral cause uh, for the churches.
0: Women, you wrote about the biracial groups in the twenties and thirties who worked in cross-racial Christian groups. What did they accomplish?
1: Well, the most notably, there was the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching. So these again were an example of reformers who were regarded as the the best people of the South, the the, the people well educated, people from old families and high status, and they took on you know lynching and lynching was uh, the the most disturbing aspect of race relations because it violated the, it, it you know went against the criminal against the system of laws you know it was it was an ultimate version of vigilantism and lawlessness and it was justified in terms of protecting women you know because often they accused people these crowd these mobs that would that would uh, lynch african-american men they would accuse them of uh of rape or sexual assault on white women these were usually that those were not true but those are the charges because it was easy to for these people coming out of that world to justify this kind of violence well what this the women in these groups like the association of southern women for the prevention of lynching did they uh testified as respectable white women that they didn't want lynching to happen. You know, that this was a form of barbarism and it was lawlessness. And so they they often were most effective in local communities and trying to, to prevent uh, lynchings at the local level. Uh, Faulkner, again, has some scenes of this, an intruder in the dust where the older white lady goes to the jail and sits in front where there's a black prisoner inside to prevent the mob. And the, the mob wouldn't cross her because she is the ultimate symbol of respect in the in the South as this, this Southern woman, Southern white woman. So, um, the these groups of women never were able to change the the uh, never able to pressure Congress to pass an anti-lynching law that had been one of their goals. But nonetheless, I think what they accomplished was mainly at the local level and trying to to tamp down this lynching fever.
0: You could have written an entire book on Lucy Randolph Mason. (laughs) The labor movement, what did she uh, accomplish there?
1: Well, she was a fascinating figure. She had a 40 year career uh, in working for uh, labor unions. Um, And she came from, again, a prominent family in Richmond, Virginia. Her father was an Episcopal minister, and her mother was was a kind of reformer who so was active in uh, trying to improve conditions in prison. She grew up in a very religious family, and she early on embraced uh, the social gospel. Now, the social gospel is a theology that says uh, that if you're converted to Christianity, you have to go beyond that and try to reform society so that society will be just. So it's a it, it's a theology about about working towards social justice using religion as as the motivating factor so she took that faith into this work uh so she had a real sense of mission about this and very uh, interracial she worked in a lot of uh kind of on the ground uh organizations that brought her in contact with african-american leaders and became friends uh across the color line um she was so amazing because again she was so respected from this well off family and very religious, kind of a prim and proper Southern Victorian lady. And she would go into local communities where there was the where labor unions were trying to organize, and she would go and talk to the sheriff and talk to the newspaper man, uh, talk to the business leaders, talk to the ministers, and try to encourage them to not oppose these labor organizers when they came in the next week or the next two weeks or whatever. And so the, the result was that she was about as effective as anyone in terms of preparing the way for the, those unions that were able to get a foothold in the, in the South.
0: Now you talk about the soldier that was from the North. How did he describe the South?
1: He uh, so there were estimates are that four million non-Southerners or so were uh, served in the South because the military bases during World War II were predominantly in the South because of the climate and and the cost of land to build the bases and, and other things. But so four million non-Southerners came into the South. And this was their first exposure to the South, you know, and they often, they, well, they I think they appreciated the individual hospitality that sometimes they would meet, but they did not like the region and portrayed it in very negative terms. Uh, uh, sometimes it involved race, you know, they, they saw, uh, uh, racial violence and they, they protested that, but most, you know, the thing that they wrote about most really, uh, in the Southern, the Northern soldier was the climate and the environment, you know, and, and, uh, things like snakes that many of these Northern boys were from cities and had never seen a snake and the snakes in the rural South were everywhere, uh, uh, and bugs, especially bugs, would drive them crazy. You know, the uh, mosquitoes uh, and all sorts of other bugs that that thrive in the humidity and the heat of the of the southern summer. So that was a, you know, when you look at their letters and diaries, that was the main uh, thing that shaped their view of the South during the war.
0: Did the Southern way of life change after the veterans returned home?
1: Um it did change, uh, began to change. Let's put it that way. It began to change. There was a brief period of time right at the end of the war when it seemed like the South was going to change pretty rapidly. Um, So World War II uh, had, as I just said, had brought millions of non-Southerners into the South, and this meant bringing new viewpoints into the region that native Southerners would uh, talk with them or Date them, you know, even whatever. And so it, it sort of disrupted that old pattern to some degree. And of course, uh, Southern uh, boys served in the American military and uh, went to and, and went north or west or went overseas. My father, uh, who grew up on the farm in, in Middle Tennessee, he had never been further than Nashville when the war began. And he wound up serving in the uh, 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 Army. Air Force, the Eighth Air Force, and he was stationed in basingbourne England for f- three years. And this widened his horizon in enormous ways, you know, to, to see the world and to, to meet people of all sorts. And, and so that, that was a factor in, in beginning the process of, of, of change. And the, the veterans uh, came back and many of them began going to school with the, through the GI Bill. So this Also, education became a kind of leavening factor in bringing change to the South. Uh, Some of these uh, veterans became active in politics in southern states, and they helped to reform some of the corrupt local political systems in Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia. And uh, so they became advocates for change in the South.
0: The early nineteen fifties and the relationships between black servants and the white families. Do you think people realize the closeness that many of these families
1: had? I, I don't think so, and it's it's uh, part of the uh, complexity of, of the South. You know, we we know about the the segregation laws and and all of those efforts to marginalize African Americans, but. The the other side of it at the same time is that, you know, most Southerners uh, up until the late 20th century lived in small towns and they lived uh, with, uh, you know, whites, lived adjacent many times to African-Americans. African-American servants uh, worked for very low wages because that was all they could get. There weren't other jobs other than farm jobs on sharecropping uh, farms or tenant farming So they would work for for a small amount of money. Um, And so most middle-class white families could have a a black servant. Uh, And those black servants uh, often had considerable moral authority within the family. Think of uh, the wonderful novel To Kill a Mockingbird with Capernaum, the the African-American maid who uh, was a force for inculcating Values uh, in in the children. Uh, uh, he, they had real authority um, in teaching the the underlying values of of the Southern way of life, like like manners and moral concern and, and all of this. Uh, religious values; those things were shared often by white and black families. And in addition to this, always potential for violence if things got ugly. In relations between whites and blacks, you also had this level of intimacy that they had uh, just from daily involvement.
0: Southern Living Magazine, how did this magazine portray the South?
1: Well, Southern Living Magazine, I think, is the uh, most important force in a lot of ways in representing uh, the emergence of the last major concept about the Southern identity. Uh, and the Southern Living magazine began publishing in 1966. Now, that time period is very significant because, as I've said before, the mid-1960s brought a change of the racial customs with the end of Jim Crow's legal segregation, and um, and empowerment of african-american voters the south began to to change the south was more prosperous it was becoming industrialized so the southern living magazine portrayed a middle-class south it portrayed a south of the suburbs you know uh not small towns uh, necessarily or certainly not rural areas so much um and it 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 was a real uh southern living is magazine is a kind of house and garden magazine at heart but they they talk about Southern traditions. You know, if you read stories even now, they say uh, uh, <clears throat> Southerners should know how to make cornbread the right way, you know. So they became a force for inculcating readers, modern readers, uh, about not only the suburban worlds they lived in now, but also about the inheritance from the old rural South and rural Southern traditions, and how you could still embody that by what you cook or the music you play or or the stories you tell. So I think it it combined past and present.
0: Neshoba County Fair. How is this a part of the Southern way
1: of life? Well, the Neshoba County Fair is in Neshoba, Mississippi, and it's been going on since the late 19th century. Uh, and it's, a, it's called the people who go call it a giant house party for the state of Mississippi, uh, and it draws people from all across the state. It's a, What it is is a campground, a fairground, and there's a series of uh, very modest wooden houses, not fancy at all, uh, but they have been in families uh, for generations now. And the Neshoba County Fair is every July, and it draws these people, not only families who own these cabins, but also um, friends of of theirs who are invited to come down. Uh, You know, if you're a writer, there's a pretty good chance you might get an invitation to come and sit around and tell stories. If you're a musician, there's a lot of music often. So it, it it's uh, a reflection of the past and a kind of nostalgic version of the Southern way of life. Um, unfortunately, it's it's still pretty racially segregated, not by law or anything, but it's just that most of the people are whites Who, well, they they're they're all the ones who own the these uh, cabins. And so uh, it becomes a kind of self-reinforcing. It's kind of a domestic version of segregation that's not public, that's not enforced, it's just a kind of uh, inheritance from the past of how things were always done. Let's skip to
0: 1993, the North American free trade business. How did this decimate small southern towns?
1: Well, the... um, the South's industrialization had been limited in the 20th century, but there were uh, several industries like apparel industry and the furniture industry and the textile industry. that were uh, very prominent and especially in the hill country areas and the Piedmont of North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia. Uh, they were an important source of income for people and a prosperity for the local communities. Now, the people in these industries uh Worked for cheap wages, cheaper than northern industries would pay. But that was the going rate. But what happened with the North American free trade uh, law was that it opened up um, American businesses to go overseas. And so that proved devastating for the apparel industry, the textile industry, and the furniture industry in particular, because southern workers, even though they might work cheaper than workers in you know, Michigan or someplace, they could not work che- as cheap as workers in Bangladesh and Mexico City, and so this was a policy decision about free trade and globalization, um, <clears throat> and Southern businesses made use of it uh, in in making for overseas production, but it was a disaster uh, for the for the, many of the small communities where the there may be a, the only local employer may have been the textile mill, and all at once they're not there anymore. So the city's lost all taxes, lost all vitality, lost jobs. Uh, Estimates are that, that uh, many some southern towns lost a quarter to a third of manufacturing jobs as a result of that agreement.
0: Well, we have Latinos in the South. What do you see as their position in the racial pyramid?
1: they're interesting because they're outside the traditional sort of racial biracial, uh, hierarchy in, in the South. And they're very, uh, prominent. Now they're large in numbers. Uh, one estimate, uh, is that more than 30% of all foreign born people in the United States now live in the South. You know, tr- historically the immigration belt was the Northeast and the Midwest. <clears throat> and, but now with Latinos, it's in the, the in the South and the Southwest. Um, they are—they come into this biracial world, you know, and and uh, you know, look at the kind of images we think of often with Southern history—it's Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. Well, Latinos are not a part of that world either of those worlds. They're not part of the white world. They're not part of the African American world. Uh, they're a, a true new force, and they are—they're um, treated in all sorts of complex ways. You know, they're not part of the traditional. Uh, hierarchy of, of race, their ethnicity is the key to, to the, to them. Um, you know, they're, they can be demeaned if they're an undocumented uh, workers, they can be demeaned and politically uh, exploited, you know, and economically exploited, but there are many middle-class uh, families uh, that are in the South that are small business owners and, uh, and they're, you know, working their way up the generational hierarchy and, 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 uh, and they uh, are, they're, I think, that in terms of the racial categorization, um, they are wearing away at that, uh, wearing down that, that thinking about Southern living, Southern way of life, as being a, a biracial thing. They're complicating the, the story of the South.
0: Well, we cannot discuss the Southern way of life without talking about football. Tell us about that. What do you find out? from your information there?
1: Well, I think sports has always been a very vital part of Southern Way of Life. And in the old rural days, it was it was really a recreational sport of fishing and hunting and those things. But in the modern South, spectator sports uh, are huge, of course. And football is interesting in the United States because it beat college football began in the Northeast and among Ivy League schools, and it spread to the Midwest and the West Coast but it was not popular in the South until, uh, the 1920s. And the, there was a particular game where the university of Alabama, uh, went to the Rose bowl out in California and beat, I think a California team, Stanford perhaps. And that was a huge victory for Southern football in general, because it got a lot of national attention with a lot of journalists talking about, well, Southern football is finally up to the quality of the rest of the country. So, um, From that point, Southern football rose in popularity, and uh, especially college football. Now, Bear Bryant came along at a particular point in time in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Uh, And one thing is he was a winner. You know, uh, the South, uh, after the Civil War, celebrated the Confederate generals, but they really had lost the war. Whereas the imagery of Bear Bryant is he's a winner. You know, he wins football games, uh, and he is the one that helped plant this. It's a kind of cult of college football that has such an such a, a extraordinary level of popular devotion and, of course, financial commitment that the universities make to football, college football programs. But Bryant was also important in terms of the integration of Southern college football. In 19, He had wanted to integrate Uh, his college teams because he recognized the abilities of black athletes, but he couldn't do it as long as there was Jim Crow segregation. So after Jim Crow segregation legally ended, legally ended, there was still a time lag when white Southerners were not really ready yet to uh, admit African-American athletes into their, uh, you know, uh, favorite sport of college football. But Bryant worked behind the scenes to start recruiting black athletes. And there was one particular game where the University of Southern California came to Tuscaloosa to play Alabama and beat Alabama, even though Alabama was a national powerhouse. And the black uh, halfback on the team for Southern Cal scored four or five touchdowns and just ran over Alabama. And this began then... Bear Bryant could sell the state of Alabama, sell Southern whites. If we're going to win at football, we've got to recruit the best athletes, and some of them are going to be African-American. So he was a, he was a progressive force in that regard.
0: The South has always been multicultural, but how is it growing and changing?
1: Um I asked a friend of mine, a sociologist, John Shelton Reed, uh, a few years ago, how he would describe the future of the South. And he said, uh, hola, y'all. And that's it, reflecting the role of Latinos, but also the role of other immigrants who have come to the South in the last 25 years. Uh, Many come from Asia. You know, the fastest growing Asian population now is not on the West Coast as traditionally, but in the South. Uh, and also Middle Easterners. Uh, Nashville has the largest Kurdish population, I think, in the United States. So um, the South is being energized and uh, culturally revitalized by the presence of these new uh, ethnic groups, and other groups as well who are uh, embracing the South and also they're, they're uh, contributing notable features. You know, you can think about the Mexican restaurants. When I came to Oxford, Mississippi to teach at the university of Mississippi in 1981, there was not a single Mexican restaurant. There was no, I couldn't go to the local grocery and buy any makings for tacos or anything like that. And now there are like eight Mexican restaurants in in my small town. Um, And so there, and I think food is the best metaphor for me of what is happening in the the South with with its growing multiculturalism and, and changing and it's a kind of fusion identity a, a hybrid identity that's the traditional Southern way but also infused by these new these new ways that these new Southerners are are bringing and you can look at at, at uh, cookbooks and cookbooks by uh, 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 Lebanese or Lebanese, uh, uh, cooks, chefs, uh, food writers. And they talk about combining Lebanese, traditional Lebanese food with, uh, with Southern food. One of my favorites is a cookbook called The, the new Southern Latino table by Sandra Gutierrez. Now she, uh, was born in North Carolina, but grew up part of the time in Guatemala. And so she's got this blended identity, uh, of, of, uh, of Latin American culture and cuisine and Southern culture and cuisine. So in her cookbook, she has recipes combining grits with, uh, roasted poblano peppers. She's got chili rellenos filled with pimento cheese. She's got recipes for barbecue pork in tacos rather than traditional, uh, carnitas or other kind of Mexican fillings. <clears throat> and I think this is a metaphor for the fusion of, of all these, uh, groups, traditional Southern groups, Whites, Blacks, with these new immigrants who are coming and bringing new features into a revitalized Southern Way of Life.
0: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on?
1: Uh, Thank you. Uh, I've enjoyed this, and uh, I am going to be working on a follow-up book to my Southern Way of Life book, and it is called The Southern Way of Death. And it's about the history of Southern funerals and cemeteries and religious attitudes toward death and um, uh, storytelling about death, folklore of death. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting into this companion piece to the Southern Way of Life.
0: Well, we'll be looking forward to that new project. And again, we have been talking to Dr. Charles Reagan Wilson, the author of The Southern Way of Life meanings of culture and civilization in the American South. Thank you so much.